0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is Conversations with Corey, Episode 3. I'm Corey Hutchinson. I'm proud to have you uh, along again. Thank you all uh, so much for those of you who listen and um, and have uh, joined us the past couple episodes. So lots of stuff has happened um, within the past week or so, and um, one of the things I said about the podcast was we talk about local issues but also branch out into state and national as well just because I feel like All of it's important, and we'll diversify our topics each time. Uh, I want to talk about um, a couple things. First of all, I want to send thoughts and condolences to South Florida, to the Miami area, and all those who have um, been dealing with the tower collapse down there, those who have lost their lives, those who've had family in there, just uh, really sending our thoughts and condolences to that the region right now. That has been uh, devastating, and it, it brings up something um not just a uh, building wise but infrastructure wise we've had a lot of discussions on infrastructure a lot of discussions on the importance of it and something we talked about in Sarasota County a lot's been our traffic grids in other areas you know it's bridges in other um, regions it could be the condos high rises etc now um the, there was an article that I read recently, and it brought up a good point. The article basically said, you know, the title of it was, In South Florida, Developers Often Demand Exceptions to Rules. Champlain Towers Got Several. That was the title. And it the article detailed how developers try to influence the, the political process to get approval for things, but it really brought up something that I think is really important. That is that um, developers quite often will try to bend the rules for whatever they're doing. You know, whether it's building something or not paying an impact fee or whatever it may be. One of the concerns that I have, and I talked about this at length when I ran for office, is that it does a disservice to the community that you're in when developers continue to get all these benefits and continue to get all these breaks and skate the rules. It is um, cert- you know something that an individual homeowner would certainly not be able to get away with because, quite frankly, we don't typically have the money nor the influence to do it. And <clears throat> I don't blame the developers for asking for breaks, whether it be a reduction in impact fees, whether it be, you know, can I not adhere to this standard, and and we're all okay, or whatever it may be. I don't blame the developers for asking for that. That's their job. Their job is to protect their bottom line. However, those in the office, in the municipality, or the county where all these projects are being approved, don't have to say yes. They can be more discerning, and should be more discerning. Because And I'm not going to say that Champlain Towers was caused because of this, that this has just made me think of the issue. The problem I have is that when you allow a developer, business owner, homeowner, whoever, not usually the homeowner in these cases, but whoever, get away with skirting the rules, not paying full impact fees, this, that, and the other thing, you really do a disservice to the remainder of the community. And I'll, I'll take the impact fees as an example. If we don't charge impact fees at 100%, the community is going to be paying for uh, impact related expenses that that developer should have paid for. You know, we have a lot of traffic grid problems in Sarasota County. We have more projected build out, more so than what we already have. We have, in addition to that, um, especially as you get to downtown Sarasota, St. Armand's, and all that, a, a real traffic grid concern, extreme concerns in terms of evacuation routes for hurricanes, and all of the development that we have coming in, whether it's just the residential houses and all this new commercial building even, they, they each should be paying 100% impact fees. And the reason is, if they don't, we're going to have a deficit what it, what happens is they don't pay 100% impact fee let's say they pay 75% that means 25% of every impact is not being paid for so that that 25% there is going to get passed on to our tax dollars and essentially what happens is we run out of money you know we say we don't have in the budget to widen this right now or we don't have in the budget to do this right now we don't have in the budget right now to fix this sewer line whatever it is and that becomes a problem because then things get kicked down the road they'll say maybe next year we'll have it maybe next year we'll have it we'll delay this two more years we'll delay this three more years then it never gets done and then you have a problem because more people build and more people build and I'm not saying to have a moratorium on building that would be very very tricky and hard to do and um, I wouldn't wouldn't um, advocate for that The uh, thing that I would advocate for is 100% impact fees and making the builders play by the rules. You're not going to see a reduction in development, and if we did, you know, heaven forbid, it it may be a good thing, but you're not going to see a reduction. Ultimately, the builders and the developers, they come here because they think they can make profit, and they're still going to make profit, even if you charge them the 100% impact fee even if you force them to play by all the regulations 100% of the time. They're still going to come here. They're still going to build their business, home, etc. However, in this instance, it means that, number one, we're going to be making sure everything is safe and structural integrity is upheld. And number two, we're going to get all the money that we need to be able to fix the roads. And quite honestly, if a... Developer comes in and they're building something, and the impact of their whatever it is is going to force a road to need to be widened in the future. They should have to contribute to that because they're partly responsible, and that's how we get a lot of infrastructure repair done, not on the backs of the taxpayer. And I want people to to just keep this in mind because a lot of times folks talk about the taxes and too high, uh, you know, property taxes are going up, all this is going up, you know, to pay for all these improvements. You don't necessarily have to raise all your taxes as much if you force the developers to pay their fair share. And and that's what it turns into, is, is doing that. Because it's unfair to continue to increase the expense of the entire city because these developers and so many of them don't want to pay the 100% impact fee and councils across the state and commissions and county commissions etc across the state need to buck up get a backbone and force these folks to to pay the the full 100% and it may help if a lot of them didn't get contributions from all these people but That's, I guess, a separate issue. Speaking now, as we transition from that, I've talked about development enough, I think. I'm going to transition to uh, campaign contributions. Uh, Governor DeSantis, in a Senate bill that was passed at the beginning of the month of May, has um, essentially wiped out any municipal regulation of campaign finance that is more restrictive than what the state sets out. So. The state of Florida campaign finance law states that any candidate can raise uh, or can, excuse me can receive 100 or excuse me can receive $1,000 per contributor per election cycle. Now we know an election cycle to be the primary cycle is one. then after the primary is a general election cycle, usually from August to November, that's a separate cycle. So, John Smith could donate to you $1,000 before August and another $1,000 after August, assuming you make it through your primary. And for candidates, even if you do not have a primary opponent, you are still running in two cycles, the primary cycle and the general cycle, even if you are not on the ballot in August because you don't have a primary. So, with that being said, that's what the state limit is. Now, Some municipalities, not very many, but a couple, the city of Sarasota and the county of Sarasota had this, um, essentially limited the contributions to $200 per person per election cycle. Political parties, on the other hand, across the state are subject to different regulations, as are the PACs and um, those type of funds. So this discussion right now, I'm just referring to donations from private individuals. So, essentially, Governor DeSantis, in signing this bill, the bill states that any of these regulations that restrict the donation amount to lower than what the campaign um, limit is at the state, those restrictions are null and void. So, essentially, that $200 limit in the city of Sarasota is now no longer legal and no longer in effect. And um, this, I think, will... Number one, make it easier across the state. Now, I, I am all for getting money out of politics. I think that big money in politics is one of the contributors behind why we get um, such crap in terms of elected officials in some areas and in Congress sometimes. Because of these uh, limits that allow big money and big packs and all that stuff. That being said, it is um, it, restricting the limit. Uh, we have seen doesn't work. And I used to be an advocate for this. I'll admit it. I thought that if we restricted the limit down to 200 or 250, uh, it would make a big impact. And evidence and data direct that you can look at on public finance reports shows that that is not the case because what happens is big donors will just split their big donations into numerous smaller ones from numerous people on their boards or business or whatever and it essentially works out the same. Another another aspect of that is that really once you get to a certain point of spending and taking in money you lose a return on investment. So for a big candidate who you know let's say gets $200,000 in an election Um, And they got it through a bunch of $200 donations. Let's say that some of those developers up those $200 to $1,000 each. So instead of $200,000, that candidate ended up raising $350,000. Is there a huge difference in that? Obviously, that's $150,000 more. Yes, it's big. But we're looking at value and return on investment. How much more targeting did that candidate really get? How much more value did that candidate get? Especially if you run an election where it's heavily one one party. Because the, the purpose of money is obviously so you can spend to advertise. But if you are in, let's say, a partisan election where there are 70% Republicans in that district... And you're running in the Republican Party side, and you have a Democratic opponent. That $300,000 isn't really going to make a huge difference. You know, $350 versus $200,000. No, it's really not. It's really not. So, this limit of $200 per donation isn't, isn't harming the big money candidate. What it does do is harm the little money candidate. Because if that little money candidate got 25000 at $200 each, maybe some of his or her donors would have given $1,000, and they could have raised maybe $75,000, $100,000. Now the little money candidate would have had a better chance to compete. And this could be you know, not just in the opposing party, but in the, in the same party's primary too. Let's say you have two Republicans or two Democrats going against one another, in their party's primary, you have one that, usually there's always one that's supported by the party in the big money interest. That's usually how it works. Then you have another one who maybe is lesser known who comes in without all that support but wants to run. Well, the big money candidate who gets $200,000, two hundred dollars to three hundred fifty. obviously we think of that, that's a huge jump, that's a huge deal it's really not in terms of return on investment you can only saturate the same voters over and over and over enough times before they really start to ignore you or they've already decided who they're voting for so in in a primary especially this money can make a difference in the little money candidate 25,000 to 50 to 75 for that little money candidate is huge or in a nonpartisan election where it, you could have a Republican versus a Democrat, but it's nonpartisan. Obviously both are registered with a party, but it could make a bigger impact in those type of elections. So I think that you know Citizens United should be overturned at the Supreme Court level. I think that a lot of things are um, not good in terms of campaign finance in this country for elections across the board, not just local, but Congress president, governor, every single one. Every single one has the the opportunity for a lot of um, unfortunate corruption because of money. That being said, I don't think that limiting the donations to, you know, 200 apiece is really going to be the answer here. I think that it is uh, a much bigger deal to Change how PACs and all that can influence elections, but that would be a different story for probably a different time. Anyway, um, so this is going to influence elections. Essentially, the way I understand it, it's going to it starts immediately. So, the county and the city of Sarasota have always had these $200 limits, or city of Sarasota, relatively recently, but. What happens now is that, you know, the way I understand it, from this election moving forward, 2022 election moving forward, there, those ele- those um, limits aren't going to be there. So I'm going to be really interested to see how the finances go for um, uh, this, this next, next election, especially the county commission races, which are typically very big money races, unfortunately. I'm very interested to see how the um, this... this limit of a thousand apiece will affect that. Probably for the big money candidates not a whole lot to be honest with you and I went into the the why and how of all that. So, and and part of my um, my concern with a municipality when it has a limit of 200 apiece or anything more restrictive than the state while there is home rule and I'm an advocate of home rule Uh, You really can't um, directly contradict a state statute. And I feel like some of these ordinances from the city perspective, when you're talking about campaign finance, um, I think it's very, uh, very iffy in terms of the legal grounds, you know, could it be, you know, violating the state statute or does the state statute take precedence? I kind of think it does, um, but again, I'm not a lawyer, so anyway, that's my topic on that. Um, something a little bit uh, less serious, a little bit more happy, if you live in the city of Venice, the Brohard Paw Park has reopened. They spent about a month constructing a new concrete path, not only for puppies, but um, to be ADA accessible as well. So I think that is fantastic for all the folks there. Venice has a great series of beaches. The dog beach is probably the first one that I went to as a little kid with our puppy. And I think that it's um, very important to to note that um, Venice has done some great initiatives, not just here but elsewhere, with making their walking paths more accessible for for folks with disabilities who need those um, need those extra accommodations. So that's really good. Um, the SCAT bus service now has an on-demand uh, portion to it. This has taken effect at the beginning of June, and essentially you can pay a little fee. I think it's about $1.25 or $1.50 to get a car service to come take you to the bus stop or to take you to the nearest bus route. Now, this is what you'll have to use in the city of Northport if you want to ride a bus because this, the service essentially has not, um, not continued in the city of Northport. It is pretty much gone here in terms of bus service. It really didn't have a lot of demand. Now, part of the reason, I think, is because the stops are scattered everywhere, and it was very difficult for somebody who needed a bus to actually get to the bus stop. But I think the on-demand service is key. I actually advocated for this in 2016. I think that it is going to help people get to the stops just because they were spread out too far and few in between this on-demand service. Really nominal fee, $1.25 or $1.50 a ride. You can go to the um, SCAT website, Sarasota County Area Transit, to be able to um, get a hold of this service and uh, schedule a ride. Alrighty, and now it is time for the My View segment. This is where I go into a little bit of a soapbox rant about something that I'm passionate about. Again, I welcome all your thoughts. Corey Hutchinson at Outlook.com or find me on Facebook to comment and share your thoughts on what I'm about to say. School boards across the country, unfortunately, are, um, are notorious for using the staff of the school district as pawns in, in things that they want to do. And I think that that's unfortunate. While I'm not naive enough to think that school boards are a pure place or or a holy place in terms of political office, I think that they should be. If there is one level of office that should not be tainted, that should not become partisan and ugly like the others, it should be the school board. And the reason is because it's our kids that are at stake and our teachers and our staff and the families of the community. Schools mean a lot, and it means more than just the education. If you're a person who, for whatever reason, doesn't care about education, but you're concerned about property values, schools affect that highly. Schools affect the reputation of your community, whether they are good or they are bad. And it is so important for school boards to do right, most of all by the kids and the families and the staff of the school district. And that's why I believe that these voucher programs are so horrible at this stage because they're being abused by people for other other means. Vouchers started out as a way for students who were not being successful in public school to get a scholarship to a private school. Now, I have no problems with private school, charter school, or homeschool. I have no problems with people putting their kids there, and I have no problems with people advocating for their kids. All that is stuff that should be happening and should be done. The problem I have is that these vouchers use public money, taxpayer public money, to pay for private schools. And they are being done so by undermining the public schools. I want you all to know that when you hear critical race theory and all that, there is no plan to teach critical race theory anywhere in the state of Florida. There is not even any curriculum for it. And board members are going to try to scare you by saying that, oh, it's embedded in curriculum that's already there, or it's embedded in secret keywords. No, it's not. No, it's not, and that's just the fact. This is a scare tactic, and it has not even anything to do with race. They're going to say it does, but that's not the point. The point is they want to undermine your trust in public schools. Because if they do that, when they continue to bring forward their plans for vouchers, in funding private schools, you're going to be more likely to say yes if you don't have faith in the public schools. The fact of the matter is there's nothing wrong with a private school or a charter school. But if somebody came to you and said that Walmart needed a grant from the taxpayer to buy new shopping carts, would you agree to it? No, you wouldn't, because Walmart's a private company. You would expect for them to pay for their own. Private schools, and charter schools that are private, are private entities. They are to fund themselves and receive their own funding, etc. They're not public schools. They don't receive public funding, nor should they. That money should be reserved for the actual public schools. Because what happens is, if their plan is successful in passing on these vouchers, and more and more, your public tax money is going to go to private schools. A lot of folks in Northport didn't like the water park being built because it was public money being used for what they considered a private use. A lot of people in Northport didn't like the baseball stadium because it was public money being used for what they considered private. This is the same thing. And I want this to to be, actually worse probably, I want this to be known. It is not a debate as to whether private schools should exist or which is better, public or private, etc. The fact of the matter is these voucher programs use your public dollars to fund private schools and to fund folks' education at private schools. Do you want your tax money paying for a private organization? Because it's not going, what's going to happen is your taxes aren't going to be lowered. They're not going to be taken away from, from one thing to go to another. You're just going to be paying more now for an entity that shouldn't get public money is what you're going to get. And you have to ask yourself if you're okay with that. And if you're not, then you need to, need to really pay attention because the argument about critical race theory and public versus private and all that, quite honestly, has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with any of that. They're just using that to get to their ultimate goal, which is to privatize education using public tax dollars. And I hope you all continue to pay attention for that because it's happening in our own county and in others across the state. That's my view, and I'd love to hear yours. Thank you all for tuning in once again. We'll be back with another episode next week. I really appreciate it. Again, you can reach me at any time, Corey Hutchinson at Outlook.com, or on my Facebook page at Corey Hutchinson. Have a great one. Stay safe and stay well.